Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Have you ever been on a long drive in the summer when you wore sunglasses for hours and hours? It's getting dark, and then suddenly you realize you're still wearing sunglasses. You take them off, and in a moment, the whole world brightens, and you realize it's not nearly as dark as you thought. This is the nature of looking through a lens. It colors your perception of reality. Today, we are beginning a two-part series to talk about lenses through which we read Scripture. What's your hermeneutic, or interpretation, strategy? Today, we'll focus on the view known as dispensationalism, championed by Dallas Theological Seminary, the Way International, many Baptist, Charismatics, and non-denominational churches, as well as theologians like Charles Ryrie, C.I. Schofield, and E.W. Bullinger. We'll get into what this system entails in just a moment, but let me first introduce my guest. John Truitt grew up in California and Texas, converting to Christianity as a Methodist at 14. After a few years of not attending church at 21, he converted to biblical Unitarianism in the shadow of the Way International through an X-Way group and learned to read the Bible in line with classic dispensationalism. Later on, he joined Spirit and Truth Fellowship and even served on the board for a number of years. After this, Truett co-founded Allegiance to the King, a web-based ministry with over 150 video teachings, regular virtual church video conference meetings, and an annual young adult event in Kentucky. Truett is also the founder and owner of Kaleo Technologies, a managed IT service provider company based out of Paducah, Kentucky. Today, he's going to talk to us about dispensationalism and his own journey with dispensationalism. Uh, now, whether that's where you're coming from or not, I believe this interview will help you understand the topic more deeply and be able to get a better grasp on what the claims of dispensationalism are and what some of the issues with dispensationalism are from a biblical point of view. So here now is episode 311, Evaluating Dispensationalism, Part 1, with John Truitt. John Truitt, welcome to Restitutio. So glad you could join me today. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be here. Well, we're going to be talking about the subject of dispensationalism. And to begin, why don't you give us a little bit about your own background on the subject and how you even became aware of this very long word and what it means. <laughs> That's funny because I didn't know the, the word dispensationalism or dispensationalist didn't know those words. I didn't know those terms and uh, didn't realize that I was one uh -huh. uh, for many, many years. My background, I uh, originally um, was trained up as a young Christian in an X-Way International group in Dallas. And uh, they basically, I, you know, I went through the, the foundational class that the, the Way Ministry would use um, called Power for Abundant Living. Uh, they had a bootleg copy of it and, and would run <laughs> classes with their bootleg VHS tapes. And, um, and so I went through that and I, as a new wide-eyed Christian made a lot of sense to me and I didn't know any different. Uh, I, had, I wasn't really raised as a Christian. And, um, and so I, I just absorbed all of those things. Now, they, it wasn't really, it wasn't like I was being taught dispensationalism 
as a term and and understanding that the history of that concept, that sort of thing. I was just taught the ideas uh, contained in dispensationalism uh, as a um, a system of how to understand the Bible. And there there were a lot of different terms like you know we, we typically did we didn't use that word. We would use words like administrations, you know, that that sort of thing. And then that continued. Um, throughout the years that I was involved with that group, and then after I left that group and um, I got involved with Spirit and Truth Fellowship International, continued in that same uh, dispensational uh, vein um, for for quite a few years. And then over the course of the last really probably 10 years as a whole, began to start to shift away from that that system. Okay, well, before we go any farther, let's maybe you could just lay out for folks that maybe have never heard of this or aren't from a way background what your what your grid for interpreting scripture was uh, when you were a dispensationalist, and then secondly, maybe you could address the objection. Well, what do you mean you don't believe in administrations? Are you saying that we all are you trying to flatten out the Bible and say that we're all living? the same as the time of Abraham or the time of Moses. I mean, clearly there are, God deals with his people in different ways over different periods of time. I don't think anyone disputes that. So uh, maybe just go into those two things, giving it a little description of, of how you were, were trained to think about scripture. Sure. Let me, let me give you the, the 50,000 foot view first. And then we probably, you know, as we go, we'll get into more detail about the specifics, the category that we're talking about dispensationalism, uh, that sort of thing. The, the counter to uh, dispensationalism typically in, in Christianity is covenantalism. Both of those, covenantalism and all of its forms and dispensationalism and all its forms are both in the category of hermeneutics called theological frameworks. And, and you can think of them as paradigms or grids by which you uh, sort of divide up and interpret the scriptures. It, it actually has two sides to it. It is a hermeneutic, which would be how I'm going to interpret different parts of the scripture. And then it's also a set of theologies. Um, so, and, and you typically with those are going to view different parts of scripture and how you understand it based upon that, that grid of theologies. So it's a, it's a little challenging to nail it down into one small concept because uh, again it's a framework. So it's there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, you know, originally I wouldn't have uh, referred to it as as dispensationalism. I would have called it the administrations of scripture. And for people from my background, that's probably how you know they're going to think about it. And, and that term is is probably going to be familiar to them. So the administrations in dispensationalism, you divide up scripture based upon what are called administrations or dispensations. And there's various numbers of them, depending upon the kind of dispensationalism and the particular form of dispensationalism that you may may adhere to. But most of the time it's about seven uh, different dispensations. And uh, so some examples of dispensations, the patriarchal period would be a dispensation. The mosaic law period would be a dispensation. The church age would be a dispensation. The millennial kingdom would be a dispensation, so on and so forth. And, and people are going to say, well, there, you know, some people might say the gospel period was a dispensation. 
Some people are, are going to say that um, the tribulation, seven-year tribulation period after the rapture and before the millennial kingdom, that's a, that's a dispensation. Uh, people argue within dispensationalism about what the number is and how to divide them out. But that's the concept. And basically, it comes from the idea that God deals uh, with people in different ways uh, at different times. And originally, the idea was that it was a series of God would institute a set of, of laws or conditions that he expected mankind to follow. And then mankind would fail at that. And God would institute a new set of of laws or conditions by which he was going to interact with man. So there's and a so, progression where it's sort of getting better over time. Um, well, certainly different, you know, some dispensationalists are going to say the it's a progressing towards more and more grace, depending there's, there's a history of dispensationalism. There have been a number of movements within dispensationalism and, and to some extent they're pretty, pretty different. And uh, so, it, you know, it's very different depending upon which form you're talking about as to how you're going to think about dispensationalism as a whole. Um, but the idea is that you, these dispensations help you to understand the scriptures by knowing what sections of scripture apply under which of these time periods or administrations and how to apply them to yourself. So are you reading a part of scripture that's a different administration or, you know, should you apply what that says to yourself or are, is that pertaining to the people under that administration or dispensation? And uh, so that's, that's kind of a high level view of what dispensationalism is. The covenantalism very briefly, uh, as opposed to that, it is also a theological framework and it has different forms and a slightly longer history than dispensationalism. And uh, it does the same thing with the scriptures, but it does it by the covenants. So it's going to say, based upon the covenant that you're dealing with, that um, God is interacting with mankind based on that covenant. So the, you know, the Noetic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the, Noe uh, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, so on and so forth. Very good. Now, you just imbibe this way of thinking. You didn't really ever get taught it in a, in a more explicit way. It was just kind of woven into everything uh, because this system, this hermeneutic, is more of a lens than a picture. You know, if, if, you're, if you're being shown a picture, then you can describe the picture, you can look at it, you can talk about the colors, the form, the shapes, and so on. Uh, but if it's a lens, you can look at anything through that lens. Uh, and so it's a little bit harder to kind of step back and say, hold on, how I'm looking at everything is something that I need to consider uh, rather than how do I believe about a certain doctrine. So in this case, a doctrine would be like a picture that you could describe and look at and so on, uh, whereas this, uh, what you call the framework, is, mm -hmm. is more like a lens. So it's, it's how you see everything. Here's what's, what I find so interesting. How would you ever even become aware that you that you had this lens and second of all that there wasn't a problem with it <laughs> what what, yeah. what was your story there? It, there there's sort of two problems with that you know the first is uh, the idea that you're interpreting based upon that that lens and the specifics of how 
what that framework looks like can can create pretty different interpretations. And so the you know the the problem is if you're not aware that there are other lenses, then that's going to be challenging for your ability to to rightly interpret scripture because your lens may have problems with it and you're not even aware that there are alternatives. So, you know, the key there is, is education. Um, you, you just have to, to study and learn, you know, what are the alternatives? Because the, uh, a theological framework, and this, this leads into the second problem, theological frameworks are very useful to um, interpreting the scripture, but there's a danger to them. They are both a, a hermeneutic, which is the, uh, the tools or the, the science of, uh, of interpretation, and they're a set of theologies, and they kind of go hand in hand. They don't really, uh, we'll talk a little bit later about how you might approach theological frameworks in a better way for interpretation, uh, but typically they're used for both uh, a hermeneutic. So for instance, a dispensational hermeneutic is the idea that you approach scripture where there's more discontinuity in scripture than continuity. So the oldest form of covenantalism says that the, the scripture is, is very continuous, that the things that applied in the Old Testament still apply in, in, in a lot of ways. And, and so it's very continuous, whereas dispensationalism is more in the spectrum of, of discontinuity, where it's going to say, no, we, we want to understand the scriptures in terms of how things ha are different and have changed. And that is a hermeneutical tool. Uh, when you're approaching the, the scripture. But uh, the idea of to whom is something written uh, is involved in theological frameworks, and that is also a, a principle of interpretation. But then you have these, these theological concepts all wrapped up. Uh, you put it as a, as a picture. And so, for example, uh, within dispensationalism, in terms of the old oldest form of dispensationalism, there was the idea that the church and Israel had two different eternal destinations. Um, and the church's eternal destination was in heaven and Israel, national Israel's destination was on the earth. That's a theological conclusion, right? That's a, uh, that's a I believe a certain thing. That's not a, a hermeneutical tool. But in theological frameworks, it's often used as a theological tool. And that's where the danger comes in. That's where the, the big problem comes in. Because what you're doing is basically saying, I'm going to go to a particular part of scripture and I'm going to read that part of scripture and I'm going to interpret what it says based on the set of theologies in my theological framework. So early dispensationalists would come to the, the scripture, typically the New Testament, and they would read scriptures about, uh, say, the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God, and they would interpret uh, the kingdom of heaven, that's an earthly kingdom, that's the, um, that's the, the destination of the national Israel on earth, and the kingdom of God, that's the destination of the church in heaven. And so they're not really interpreting based upon what those terms mean and say in the scriptures, they're bringing their theology to it and interpreting it based on that theological framework. And that is the definition of eisegesis, that I'm bringing my theology to the text and I'm reading it into the text. 
And that's the, the big danger of theological frameworks, because it's very easy to do that when you're applying a theological framework to how you understand the scriptures. And if you haven't studied the subject and broaden your education and understanding about the different options and the history and what what has been debunked, even within their own camps, you know, things like that, then you may be, you know, eisegeting uh, scripture and have no idea that you're doing that um, because you've got this grid that you interpret or lens, as you put it, you're interpreting everything through. Uh, so maybe you could just share personally for you, what was your your point where you started questioning it? Sure. There was a, a number of things, um, certainly some things that always gave me pause over the years. Um, at first, I would just think of them as theological problems to work out because the, a particular scripture didn't seem to fit with the theology that I was taught and believed. I wasn't really questioning the grid. I really wasn't even aware uh, truly of the grid. I, I was, but I didn't, I didn't understand it in the scope of all of the different kinds of frameworks. It just particular, I just thought that the one that I understood was the, the, the best and only way to understand it. So I would, I would see things in the scripture that I would be like, well, that doesn't seem to fit with what I was taught. And um, so let me try and figure out how to make that fit. And in, in some cases, you know, I probably tend to start off trying to understand, is there a way for me to understand that scripture and still have it fit within the, the theologies that I believe and I've been taught and I believe? Yeah, I think we all do that. We don't just dismiss our beliefs because we run into a confusing verse. We just try to figure it out within our currently existing beliefs. And I think a lot of times, too, we just back burner different verses and different concepts because we're like, well, I don't really understand this right now, but I'll just put that on the back burner and, you know, someday I'll get around to reading more about it or researching it more in depth. But at some point, you must have hit a tipping point in your own journey here because you're you're no longer a dispensationalist. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, spoiler alert. I wouldn't even say I'm no longer a dispensationalist. I would say I've come to recognize the problem with theological frameworks, and I, I'm on a journey to, to try and settle on something that I think is useful to people in how you approach and interpret the scriptures. And I'm, I, I, I would say... I'm not done changing yet, uh, but I'll give you, I'll give you more detail about that later. Let me let me answer your question about uh, what what were some of the problems. So so one of the things that I was taught was this concept of the great mystery, right? That uh, and you know those of your listeners who again are from the background that that I'm from uh, probably will recognize that phrase. It's the idea that Paul revealed this great mystery. Or in some dispensationalists are going to say no, it wasn't just Paul; it was the apostles. Um, but, the, but the idea that there was this great mystery that really wasn't known about prior to the day of Pentecost, uh, or at least prior to Jesus's being raised from the dead, and that mystery was, is revealed predominantly in the letters of Paul. And that mystery contains a number of different things that the uh, dispensationalists are going to say the rapture, a secret rapture before the seven-day uh, seven-year tribulation period that's in the mystery um, they're going to say that the idea that salvation would be 
by grace and not by works. It's part of that mystery, the idea that the Gentiles uh, are co-heirs with, with Jews in Christ, and Christ, and so on and so forth. So there's a number of these things, the great mystery. And at one point, many, many years ago, I decided to do a word study on the Greek word mysterion, which is, is translated in, in many Bibles as mystery. In STF, we like to refer to it as um, the, uh, the sacred secret. Right. So some folks are going to be familiar with that. And I decided to, to do a word study on mysterion. And as I did that study, I also read an interesting book uh, by some scholars on doing a, a whole book on that, that one word. And it didn't take long for me to recognize, oh, wait a minute, I am applying something to this term that the scriptures don't apply. I've got this concept of the great mystery. The Bible doesn't use the word that way. Um, that's just, it's just a term in the scriptures to apply to many, many concepts. Uh, so for instance, the Messiah is a mysterion. Uh, the gospel is a mysterion. The parables in the gospels are mysterion of the kingdom, right? They're mysteries of the kingdom on and on and on and on. There's really very little that you could even say of quote unquote mysteries in the scriptures that weren't actually known prior to the, the day of Pentecost. There may be the, the idea that the, the Gentiles being joint heirs with the Jews, but even that can be argued against. And, and there's really nothing else um, that, that can easily um, be argued uh, uh, regarding that. And most things, it's very clear that it was understood prior to, at least partially. And this is, the, I can't remember the book title off my top of my head, uh, but this book made the point, went through very carefully uh, studying the word throughout the Greek Old Testament and the, and the Greek New Testament, uh, showing that typically what the term indicates is um, there's some knowledge, but not a full knowledge, and that later yeah. God reveals the full knowledge of that whatever that thing is. And so certainly the Messiah was a mystery. Well, clearly some people understood in the Old Testament time period, the Jews understood that there was a Messiah who was going to be coming, right? So they understood some things about that. There were other things they didn't. They didn't know who it was going to be. After Daniel, they might've had a rough idea of the time period. They certainly thought at the time Jesus came, this is, this is going to be the time period. The Messiah is going to come. And I, I think there, that was a pretty good conclusion. The, um, but they really didn't know the details about it. They certainly didn't understand the full details of what the Messiah was going to do. And, but it wasn't like you couldn't understand that from the Old Testament revelation because Jesus points it out to him and keeps talking. And why don't you understand you know, this, you know, these prophecies? So the first thing was the great mystery. I saw, wait a minute, there isn't such a thing, right? You have to take each instance where the Bible refers to something as a mystery on its own. And there's plenty of things that the term isn't used for in the scripture, but understanding the concept, it also fits that concept. So really most of the Bible itself fits into the category of being mysterion. So that was the first thing. Another big thing was uh, a little bit, I just say one thing on this. There were just way too many verses in the new Testament that contradicted my theology. And so more and more I'm studying this and I'm starting to question why is so much of what I taught not lining up with the Bible? Well, let me let me go back to the mystery yeah. for a second, just so that sure. 
just so that I can uh, understand what you're saying there fully. You're saying that within the dispensationalist framework, the mystery the, the mystery refers not only to the inclusion of the Gentiles, but also to the entire church administration. Yeah, the idea is there's a whole lot of stuff that God was that that the whole time period itself of the church age was a mystery and all kinds of aspects attributed to the church age. So for instance, uh, groups that believe in, you know, a once saved, always saved form of salvation are going to say that that was part of the great mystery of the church age. Uh-huh. Uh, so, and, and so you, what you're saying is you saw that there, there isn't a great mystery at all. So wh- how do you interpret those verses that do talk about the mystery, like in Ephesians and so on? You, you have to take them on their own. It's just a term. Uh, think of it as, as an adjective that just describes uh, a quality of something that uh, you've got, let's say you've got uh, three items, A, B, and C, and A has the quality of being a mystery, B has the quality of being a mystery, and C has the quality of being a mystery. But A, B, and C can be totally unrelated things. Um, And maybe A was revealed at the beginning of Genesis, and maybe B was revealed partially by Moses, and then the prophets later revealed more, and then Jesus revealed a whole bunch of stuff. And C wasn't revealed until Paul revealed at all. And, and so you have to take each one on its own. Okay. Uh, can you go into any of those verses that made it difficult for you? Do you remember any of them oh, in particular? Um, certainly the, the big one, well, I'll, I'll give you two. And the, the second one, the second concept, really, I'll speak more at length about I think it's a big deal. The first was the idea of that, could you forfeit your salvation? Many, many verses in the New Testament. When I originally approached that, and you, you and I had a, uh, a, a have had a number of talks on, on that particular subject that I, you know, I shifted from the idea of once saved, always saved to a continuance in faith model. And I, I made that shift as a dispensationalist. Uh, when I approached finally trying to really understand and thoroughly study that subject, I did so by only studying the letters of Paul and as a a strict, what what you would call a hyper-dispensationalist or a a, a less polemic term might be a a, a mid-acts dispensationalist. So So what you're saying is that doctrine is not required for dispensationalism. I mean, they often are paired together, but you you can retain dispensationalists dispensationalism and not be once saved, always saved. Absolutely. Because once I, when I came to the position of no, once saved, always saved, it is not correct. I was still a dispensationalist. And I just saw that, oh, this is something that didn't change. Um, I was taught that it changed, but now I can see from Paul's letters that it did not change. Basically, I went through and I did a study on the New Testament uh, documents beyond the Gospels and not including Revelation. And it just, there because there were so many verses that James always stood out to me. You know, you've got this seeming contradiction between Romans and James, where Romans says that uh, salvation is by faith and not by works, right? And then you've got James saying, so you see that salvation is not by faith alone, but by works also. And it's like, wait a minute, how can these two things coexist? Things like that triggering. So, you know, trying to get really at what James is saying and 
in the end, it just, you know, it was very clear what James was saying, you know, that he's, he's defining belief in a, in a way that I wasn't taught originally when he says it's not just a mental activity uh, of knowledge um, because the demons have that uh, regarding, uh, you know, who God is. And so, okay, that doesn't cut it. You have to have the demonstration of that faith uh, in, in outward manifestation of, of working it out. And he, and he gives Abraham as the example of that when he, when he circumcises, he demonstrated that he did actually have faith. And, and so I couldn't reconcile those things within my theology. So, so that, that was a big one, uh, was the, the once saved, always saved continuance in faith, because it caused me to, to really take a step back from the set of things that I was taught mm. and begin to ask the question, maybe there's something wrong with the whole set. Right. And you said there was another one too? Yeah, I think one of the big areas, it was never okay to me that Jesus was wrong. And that's why I say, well, yeah, duh, right? Okay. Well, you have to explain that a little bit. Okay. So <laughs> in a in the kind of dispensationalism that I was taught and brought up in, I think people generally avoided this idea because it's troubling. But essentially, Jesus was wrong. Uh, um, Jesus said certain things about what was going to happen and but he didn't know the great mystery he didn't know about the church age and so when the church age came along it changed um things right so when jesus says seems to say things are you know the kingdom uh the fulfillment of the kingdom is going to come pretty quickly that concept you know jesus spent quite a bit of time talking about the need for a continuance in faith but along comes the great mystery that he didn't know about right that god kept it a secret and didn't even tell him right well that essentially makes Jesus wrong. And that was a, uh, that was an idea. I just, I could never be okay with. And it seemed to me that if Jesus is wrong, our faith is on very, very shaky ground. And uh, so even though the, the natural conclusion of the kind of dispensationalism I was taught was, yeah, Jesus was wrong. Let's try and figure out how to explain that. Uh, and and people do um, in the group that I was associated yeah, I with. Yeah, I would imagine they would say that he's not wrong. He was right for his time, but we're not in his time anymore, right? Well, I know one of the explanations that's given for that um, in trying to explain that is the idea that uh, when the prophecy changes, uh, then it's okay that what the person said before isn't correct, Right. So the idea, for instance, if you take Jonah, for instance, Jonah comes into Nineveh, he gives this prophecy 40 days, you guys are toast, right? There's nothing in his prophecy about them repenting. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but then they repent and God's like, okay, uh, I'm not going to do that, right? Uh, so what Jonah said didn't come to pass, right? So that, that kind of concept, the problem with that is that we know from what we were reading that, yeah, God was really giving them the option. He was warning them this was about to happen if they didn't repent, and they knew it. And so that's pretty darn different than Jesus going around saying, hey, this is going to happen really soon kind of concept. And, and, and let me caveat this. I don't really think that that's what Jesus is saying in the Gospels, but that's how we understood it that he was wrong about that because he didn't know, God didn't reveal to him about this whole big grace age, church age period that was going to be a really long period of time. And so 
because of that uncomfortableness about that, I continued to search for other answers. And that continual search, that education process was really what began to expose me to the flaws within my own system and, and other options that were, uh, were more viable. Yeah, I would say for me, coming from a similar background, although um, we went through our transition out of dispensationalism 20 years ago, it was being separated from the teachings of Jesus. Really, if I, if I be honest, I would say that I had a superior understanding to Jesus on how to live. I, that, even just saying that sentence sounds absolutely bizarre, uh, but we believed at that in, in the old days when we were dispensationalists here um, in my group, uh, we used to believe that uh, what Jesus taught was only for the people of Israel at that time, and that you know the greater understanding came with Paul the Apostle, and that his teachings had superseded and replaced those of Jesus. And I remember really having a hard time with Luke 6.46, where Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And these other, like, judgment scene texts, like uh, Matthew 7.21 and so on, where it seems like we are judged based on whether or not we kept his teachings. And I didn't read his words, and I didn't follow them, because I thought they were not applicable to me. And uh, so there was real, really a separation between me and Jesus and uh, my lifestyle and his teaching. And uh, that was really something that opened my eyes to say, wow, Jesus really isn't my Lord. And that really didn't sit well. <laughs> I, I'm sad to say I, I was at, at one time ashamed to say that thought never occurred to me. And until I had, I had left the, the dispensationalism that I was taught. And then I began reading the Gospels anew, realizing that, oh, wait a minute, what I was taught about that stuff isn't correct. I need to reread these things in light of that. And uh, it, it made me repent in a really big way. Uh, you know, I, I, I came before the Lord after that and said, I am really, really sorry. I, you know, like into Matthew 28, he's, he's giving the Great Commission. And part of that commission is to take these disciples and teach them all that I have commanded you, right? This is after his resurrection. You know, he teach them all that I have commanded you. And it's like, wow, okay. The idea that, you know, these, these four gospels were written long after the resurrection. They were written for, by Christians for Christians. <laughs> they were written um, after Paul's epistles as well. <laughs> yes, yes, they Probably, were. Probably, right? <laughs> You know, and if if the the idea that um, which I was taught and and you articulated well that the idea that the gospels don't apply to me because the great mystery was revealed by Paul and the gospels is recording what Jesus told these Jews before he knew anything about all that stuff. It, that was Old Testament stuff, really. That whole idea you'd expect that if that were true, that at least one of the gospel writers would say something about it. Right. Oh, hey, by the way, guys, I know I'm telling you all this, but remember, it doesn't apply to you. At least something in the Gospels to that. Yeah, effect. that's a good point. Uh, but obviously, there's there's nothing like that. Well, let's uh, get into some of the forms of dispensationalism and sure. the 
commonalities and these different time periods, uh, because you have done a lot of research on this, and this is really eye-opening to see this described in kind of like an objective, almost scientific way, rather than just sort of like assumed as part of, like I said before, the lens through which we see Scripture. Let's take a look at the lens and really reverse engineer it and see, you know, what are its components and how does it work? So uh, how, how would you like to go about doing that? Well, I, I think a good transition is, you know, we were talking about the things that were kind of wake-up calls, and uh, one of the ones was just deciding, hey, let me, let me look at the history of dispensationalism. Because I, I had become remotely aware that um, there had been changes over the years in in dispensational thinking, and I decided, let me look at the history of this thing, and only to discover that it was largely invented in the mid-1800s. A few of the concepts of dispensationalism, the theological concepts, exist before that time period, and, and especially the idea of premillennialism goes all the way back to, to the church fathers, and, and I think there's a good case for that to be made from scripture. But um, and that's that's the idea of a millennial kingdom. Yeah, uh, th- th- what you said there just made me ha- just made me realize a uh, an irony that I hadn't seen before, because the way International was a restorationist group, uh, very much trying to get back to the original apostles, and if anything, Victor Weirwell claimed to be the thirteenth apostle, who is going to restore everything back to the way it was rightly divided since uh, the first century when everything fell away after Paul died or whatever. So uh, it's very, very strong restorationist. And yet the chief grid through which all research was done is, is something developed and invented in the 1800s. I mean, does that not seem like a huge <laughs> irony there? Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 <laughs> it really is. The moment I learned that um, to a large extent, uh, a man by the name of John Darby and a few other contemporaries in the mid 1800s were responsible for developing this this whole concept of dispensationalism for a a great extent anyway, uh, from whole cloth, uh, that made me take a big step back and say, whoa, wait a minute, you know, that really makes me want to question this this whole concept you know doesn't mean necessarily that it's wrong but it means i need to be highly skeptical um, before i just bite off on this this idea there's several different ways you can divide up the progression of of dispensational uh, thinking but there's been several different waves or movements some people will divide it up into kind of four i like the way craig blazing uh, divides it up into more of a, a threefold sort of uh, division. And so there's classic or traditional uh, dispensationalism uh, that originally was founded by uh, Darby and his contemporaries in the Plymouth Brethren movement. And uh, that continued kind of as a smallish, not all that well-known movement, uh, but it it grew the, the it, it wasn't called dispensationalism at their time. It really wasn't uh, called that until Darby or uh, Schofield's time. And what really made it popular in evangelicalism was Schofield's um, reference Bible. Um, All right. So when we go back to Darby, what what years are we talking about, roughly speaking? 1830s. 
Okay. And then Schofield, when, when is Schofield? Uh, turn of the century between the 19th and 20th century. Okay. All right. So this idea is already out there in Ireland. Is Ireland the Plymouth Brethren? Uh, um, the, the UK and the Americas. Okay. And uh, so it's already out there it's sort of as a small pocket of, of communities that think this way. And then Schofield comes out with this reference Bible, and it is a hot seller. And the system of reading Scripture is sort of interwoven into the study notes in that Bible, and that's how it really becomes just um, popularized in America. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You can think of the the Schofield Reference Bible as both a Bible and a commentary slash teaching tool. Um, and uh, there there weren't a lot of resources available to the general Christian public at the time. It's not like today where I can go on Amazon for Christian know, books.com or something and get just about any resource that I, I can afford um, or go to a, a, a seminary library and everything I might want access to or just stuff on the internet. There wasn't a lot for people. So it was a big deal at the time. It was very, very popular. And in it re- within the evangelical Christian world, it spread the idea of dispensationalism uh, wide and far. That was, you know, so traditional classic dispensationalism really continued until people like Ladd uh, began to question certain things uh, beginning in the early 1950s. Uh, and, Is that George uh, Ladd? Yeah, George Ladd. Certain dispensational scholars began to say, you know, um, there are some problems with this stuff, and they began to write about it. You know how it goes in academia. They start talking to each other about it. Um, one of the Things about the dispensational movement that I think is to be admired is a good thing is that for at least to a certain extent over the decades, it has been at least to a certain degree self-correcting. They have conferences dedicated to getting up and questioning teachings and, you know, hey, let's look, are are we really believing the right thing And, and that kind of thing. And that's why you have over... Um, especially the last 60, 70 years or so, you've had shifts because the dispensational scholars themselves have really gone back and looked and, and double-checked. Are, are we on the right track? Mm, I, no, we're not. Let's shift and get on the right track. So beginning in the 1950s through about 1980, you have a period uh, that uh, Blazing uh, calls revised dispensationalism. Um, where some some significant changes uh, were made from the dispensationalists previously. And I'll I'll give you a a few examples of that here in a second. Um, uh, But I would say there are still revised dispensationalists today. Um, They, they, I think, would generally refer to them, and I'm talking about scholars, Um, they would refer to themselves, I think, as traditional dispensationalists. But when you actually look at what they believe, they're really revised dispensationalists, not not classic dispensationalists. Yeah, maybe you could just mention the difference, the theological differences between classic dispensationalists, people going back to that earlier 20th century, 19th century form, and this uh, 1950s to 1980s form. Yeah, so uh, some of the big things in uh, classic or traditional uh, dispensationalism, uh, they had a view, uh, there was a, a dualism in terms of salvation and the uh, the ultimate uh, destination for believers. So all dispensationalists believe to some extent in a difference between ch- the church and Israel. 
And um, in classic dispensationalism, uh, one of the ways that manifested was this idea that, uh, that we talked a little bit about before, the eternity for uh, the heavenly people, the church was heaven, and the uh, ultimate destination for the earthly believers, Israel, was uh, a new earth. And uh, so that was that was central to classic dispensationalism. Well, revised dispensationalism revised that. There's, no, that's not. There's one destination. Now, some revised dispensationalists are going to say that one destination for all believers of all time, whether whether it's the church or Israel, is heaven, and others are going to say it's the earth. But generally, uh, by the time you get into the 1970s, dispensational scholars are all agreeing that that former dualism isn't correct. Okay. So there's still a, a difference between how God's working with the church and God's working with Israel, but they are they have the same destination in this revised form. Yeah, yeah. There there was also um beginning with revised dispensationalism a pretty big change in a hermeneutic approach to uh figures and typology in the scripture. This gets a little technical, so um just to, to briefly say that in classic uh, dispensationalism, there was a tremendous amount of interpreting the scriptures, again, a kind of dualism, where there was an original historic understanding of a particular passage of the Old Testament and a spiritualized understanding uh, of that scripture. By the time you get to revised dispensationalism, uh, they're getting more sophisticated with modern hermeneutics. And... Um, and they're saying now um, what's happening there, uh, there's still, it's still a kind of dualism, uh, but the idea is, yeah, there's a, an original historic understanding, but there's also a typological understanding that's prophetic of something that's going to occur in the future. Um, so, um, and I, I think there's some, some real truth to that. So for example, uh, Joseph uh, would be a type of Christ, right? When you see Joseph and he's got uh, his relationship with Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh has taken him out of the dungeon and put him in charge of all of Egypt to save Egypt. Eventually, his brothers, right, uh, and his family. That Joseph in the it, there's a historical understanding of that, but there's also a typological understanding of you know prophetic typo, typology of Christ. And so you get, a, there's a difference there in how classic dispensationalists would interpret that versus uh, revised. Okay. So that's a couple of, th the other thing in classic dispensationalism, this remains true today amongst groups that haven't educated themselves on what do dispensational scholars teach today and what, and what's going on. Why do they, why did they reject certain things and stuff like that is you have these subgroups within dispensationalism, within classic or traditional dispensationalism. And you have your generic mainstream traditional dispensationalism that just believes that the church age is a different dispensation than the uh, previous age of the law, right? And, and they're going to say that, for the most part, the whole New Testament is, is for the church age. Some are going to say the Gospels aren't, but that really more gets into just the subgroup uh, typically called a mid-acts dispensationalism. And this is the idea that Paul is revealing the mysteries of the church age, 
the gospels don't reveal that. Um, and mid-ex um, dispensationalists are going to do things like they're going to reject water baptism, uh, typically, uh, as an example. Uh, they're they're going to say the things that you and I believed at, at one point uh, that the gospels don't apply to me, that kind of thing. And, and then a, a third form are ultra dispensationalists, but that's a pretty small group that says that the time period of the apostles and acts was a, a dispensation on its own. And the church age itself really doesn't begin until after that period. That's a, a, a subgroup that really ne- never took off much. Okay, so let's get into the next phase. Uh, you had mentioned there are three main phases, the classic, the revised, and the progressive. What's, the, what's progressive dispensationalism? So progressive dispensationalism is the latest form of dispensationalism. Uh, there are traditional, uh, what the, we would call themselves traditional uh, dispensational scholars that are going to argue with progressive dispensational scholars. But if you, again, if you dig down in the details, they're really revised dispensationalists. And so progressive dispensationalism really kind of began around early 1980s, like late 1970s, uh, as scholars began, began, again, a lot of this has to do with um, general growth and understanding about hermeneutics and how to, the science of interpreting things and what logically works and is good and what logically doesn't work and is not good. And so progressive dispensationalists continued to, to utilize those tools and began to see mm, the scripture's not really supporting even the revised dispensationalism. So one of the differences between revised and progressive, for instance, is that the church itself is not a separate group from Israel, that believers of all time have the same promise of salvation and the church is just the latest representation of that, and that the the end goal, the promises, are to all of the believers. And so, progressive dispensationalism are, are they're going to to differentiate themselves from revised. So, revised are going to say, no, the the church is a different group, but ultimately, in the end, all believers have the same destination, which is that eternal kingdom. There's still a distinction and difference between. Israel, national Israel and, and the church and the uh, progressives aren't going to say that. The other thing that's uh, pretty different about gr- progressive dispensationalism is that it's grown much more closer to modern covenantalism, where a progressive dispensationalist recognize that the covenants are in some sense, at least, of Abraham, David, and the New Covenant being fulfilled at this time. Uh, revised dispensationalists, classic dispensationalism, are going to say, no, that's not the case, that the the New Covenant has been put on hold until its fulfillment in the future. A progressive dispensational scholar is going to say, no, it's, it's obvious that the church does have involvement in the New Covenant. It is being fulfilled, at least partially at this time, uh, they would say that it it is the form in which the Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled at this time, and so they're going to say things like um, they're going to make their argument based around you know Second Corinthians, for instance, where Paul says that he is an able minister of the new covenant, and the fact that Jesus right. instituting the uh, the Last Supper that the that the wine is his blood in the new covenant that he instituted the new covenant in his death, right? His death was the sacrifice that instituted that covenant. 
And so progressive dispensationalists are going to say, no, um, that covenant is our covenant and it applies to us. They're going to say, like progressive covenantalists are going to say, it's in partial fulfillment now. It has its full fulfillment in the future. It's just that progressive covenantalists and, and progressive dispensationalists are going to not quite have the same idea about that future. A little bit, uh, of, for the most part, progressive dispensationalists are going to be premillennialists and believe in a millennial kingdom. And most progressive uh, covenantalists are, are going to be amillennialists, believing in a, it, not believing in a millennial kingdom. And um, my opinion, really, they're very, very similar, and they, things can go either way in either framework. But, uh, but so those are a couple of the differences between those two concepts, uh, between the re uh, revised and, and progressive. Those things are still being argued amongst uh, dispensational scholars today. What they're not arguing about, and here's the key point for this topic today, is the things that um, I was taught uh, amid Acts classic or traditional dispensationalism, none of them believe that stuff anymore. Um, they, you know, they dumped that 50 and 60 years ago. By the time I was taught that stuff in the early 90s, it had already been outdated and dumped by dispensational scholars for decades. Wow. Hmm. That's such a huge point. So you're saying that if you want to be a dispensationalist, you should at least get with the program of what dispensationalists have developed over the course of the last really hundred years of the history here and not just cling to some outdated version of it that really has some serious flaws when it comes to interpretation. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, uh, it's like anything. If I'm ignorant, I need to educate myself. And if I've been taught, you know, the, the proverb is apt when the first thing that you hear sounds right but when the second thing comes along, oh, wait a minute. And, and that's exactly the case here. You know, when I learned that what I was taught was basically found to, to be wanting by dispensational scholars themselves decades before I was taught it, I, to a certain extent, I felt a little cheated. Uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, I, I hold the responsibility. All of the knowledge it has been available to me the whole time. All I had to do was step outside of my box a little <laughs> bit and go do a little study, get get a, a book or two and read about this stuff and open my eyes. Now, could you, uh, just while we're wrapping up this episode here, could you recommend a book or two? Uh, you had mentioned one just a minute ago that went through the the history here. What was that book? Yeah, I like, uh, I like Craig Blazing's book, um, uh, Progressive Dispensationalism. Uh, he's his first section is on the history of dispensationalism, and it, it does a really good job of showing the differences, the history and the differences uh, between them. And then the rest of the book, he's going to lay out uh, the case for uh, progressive dispensationalism. I want to say that uh, he wrote that in the late 90s. Uh, so that's a pretty good book. Uh, there's quite a few books on progressive covenantalism. Um, uh, I, there's a, a, a title by the the name progressive covenantalism and the, the names of the authors are, are escaping me at the moment, but maybe we can put them. In we the could put them in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Kingdom through covenant is uh, a, a book that I definitely would recommend uh, for understanding the subject from a covenantal standpoint, but it's, it's quite a bit to, to, to chew on. It's a big book. Uh, um, 
So I would say there's quite a few books that I've read on um, the problems with dispensationalism. I have spent most of my time in study on the subject of dispensationalism. I decided, you know, before I go and just jump ship and go over into this covenantal field, I really want to understand, you know, my own camp first. Let me go understand dispensationalism as a whole. And so most of the books I've read are on that side of the equation. Uh, and I've just tried to catch up with, okay, well, where are progressive covenant, where are covenantalism, where are they today, rather than really trying to understand the whole history of, of that side of things. All right. Well, we can get into the, the other options next time. Uh, but for today, thanks for talking with me. Thank you so much, Sean. All right. Well, that's it for this part of the interview. I just wanted to point out that I did put a number of books. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven book references. That might be a record here on both sides of this issue, actually, that John Truett recommended in the show notes for this episode. So you can access those in your device. I've got links to all of these books on Amazon. And you can also visit restitutio.org and find episode 311, Evaluating Dispensationalism Part 1, and find them that way. If you would like to get in touch with John Truett, you can visit allegiancetothekingorg And there's also a Facebook group, and, and you can contact him through either one of those. Uh, once again, I have the links in the show notes for this episode. If you would like to find out more information about the weekly virtual fellowship meetings, maybe you don't live near other Christians and you would love to connect online, you can email contact allegiance to the king at gmail.com and they can send you a link. Also, if you are or know a young adult who would be interested in attending the 20s and 30s Christian Conference in Paducah, Kentucky, an event that I'm planning on going to as well. That's June 12th to the 14th. Uh, you can check out the Facebook page for that event. Once again, I have that on the website, restitudio.org, as well as two previous episodes featuring John Truitt. So take a look at all of that. Most of all, I'm curious, how many of you are dispensationalists? How many of you are covenantalists? or something else. You can come on the website and and leave a comment uh, specifying what, what perspective you come from. Or I think I'll put out a Facebook survey uh, where I'll put those two options in there. And then you can add other options if you feel that neither of those two uh, accurately describes where you're coming from. Well, before closing out, I did want to read out some feedback from our last episode, 310, Our Gifts of the Spirit Available Today with Sam Storms. Carlos writes, Sean, I agree with your creed. Truth has nothing to fear. So I hope these comments see the light of public day. First, I'm not a cessationist. Let me pause the comment here. All right, well, that's that's cool. Uh, you know, it's funny because... The people who tend to criticize speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing ministries, and these sorts of things, I, I would think they would come from a cessationist point of view, saying, look, these gifts, these activities cease with the apostles. But uh, what I've seen over and over again is that people are really nervous to self-identify as a cessationist. Maybe that's just because, as we discovered in this episode together with uh, Dr. Storms, there just really isn't a biblical case to be made there. Let's see what uh, Carlos goes on to say here. He continues, but if any type of label is necessary, I would prefer evidentialist, that is, 
I follow the New Testament pattern of true signs and wonders performed by those of the sound doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Then he goes on, towards the end of this podcast, you claim that what we find through church history is in fact a continuation of spiritual manifestations that we see in the New Testament. Sometimes you say people make the claim that the Pentecostal movement at the dawn of the 20th century started this interest in speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing. That's simply not the case. That's just a historically false statement. I would even just refer you to Wikipedia to disprove that. You'll find lots of historical precursors to the Pentecostal movement. It sounds to me like you're giving New Testament legitimacy to the so-called Azusa Street Revival of more than 100 years ago and to the various so-called blessings it has spawned since. Uh, Well, let me pause you there, Carlos. No, I'm not giving legitimacy or criticism to the Azusa Street Revival of, what was that, 1910 over in L.A.? That was way before I was alive, and uh, I don't have any particular special knowledge or study on that particular event. Uh, I know that, you know, according to my church history books, that, that speaking in tongues occurred then, and it was exciting, and a lot of stuff happened, but uh, to be honest, that's not that's not really my point, uh, and I'm, I'm glad you asked for clarification on this, because it's, it's important to be able to understand where each of us is coming from. All right, your first point here, that you're an evidentialist, I don't really know what that means. That, to me, sounds like unless you have solid proof, you're going to discount everything that everyone sees or describes. I don't know if that's really where you're coming from, but I think that's just way too hard of a skeptical line to take on this. It almost presupposes naturalism. It's just over the top. I think a lot depends, for me, when it comes to evaluating these sorts of claims on the character of the person and whether or not there are other witnesses there. I don't think we need to accept everything that people say, but uh, when a close friend and and co-minister of mine tells a story about how he was in the back of a taxi cab and spoke in a foreign language he had never spoken in before, and the taxi driver understood him and and interpreted that message to him, you know, this is somebody I know, 20 or 30 years, okay? So... I'm not going to discount that lightly and say, oh, well, this story is is totally bogus because he was just, um, he's just unreliable or something like that. In fact, Carlos, I would point you to Eric Metaxas, uh, wrote a great book on miracles. And uh, essentially what he did in that book was he, he really grilled the people that were telling these various miracle stories, and every single one of them was somebody he knew personally. So he vetted them. Uh, He didn't include stories of stories, although I think he might have broken that rule maybe once or so in there. But, And then he says, look, this is what these people said they saw. I know these people. They're not crazy. They're not uh, on drugs or whatever. Uh, And maybe there are some explanations that could account for these miracles, but good luck explaining them all away because there's just too many and they're too detailed for that. I'm not in the business of going around as the policeman of the church to debunk uh, miracles. I think uh, maybe you feel this way, Carlos. I, I certainly do sometimes that uh, sometimes we're a little gullible uh, as Christians and we just accept things right off the cuff, even without looking into it. Uh, and I, I think you're, if that's where you're coming from, maybe 
maybe we should push back the other way. Uh, as far as this Azusa Street revival, uh, that wasn't my point. My point was that reductionists will tend to say, well, there was no speaking in tongues activity whatsoever between the first century and the turn of the 20th century, and that this phenomenon we know about today is all just inherited from the Azusa Street Revival and parroted and copied since then. My point is that that is not historically factual. We have plenty of incidents, especially in, uh, this is a point that uh, Sam Storms made, especially in periods of revival. I was reading Barton Stone's autobiography, that's the founder of the Church of Christ, and he saw some incredibly bizarre spiritual manifestations. And uh, Storms also mentioned several other incidences, both in this country and other countries, where there's a revival, the Spirit is poured out, and weird stuff happens. So you certainly have that, but then you also have other precursors that are enumerated in that Wikipedia article you referenced or in church history as well. Carlos continues, Not so long ago, I I actually did a teaching on so-called quote-unquote tongues and used the same Wikipedia article you seem to reference. The history section has a list of early Catholic saints like Thomas Aquinas and Protestants who claim to manifest charismatic gifts. So giving legitimacy to Trinitarian charismatics is quite baffling coming from a non-Trinitarian ministry. Uh, Carlos, I, I guess this is more revealing of your own assumptions than my assumptions. I believe that God can speak through anyone whenever he wants. I believe that he can speak through someone in a language they understand, language they don't understand. I believe God can speak through a donkey if he wants to. I don't have to agree with someone's other beliefs in order to believe that God could in some way work miraculously with or through that person. So um, that's where I'm coming from. I'm not endorsing Thomas Aquinas. I find myself really, to be honest, disagreeing with a lot of what uh, Thomas and the subsequent Thomas uh, put forward philosophically. Yeah, I, I don't want to endorse any of that. I'm not endorsing Sam Storm's beliefs in other doctrines. Uh, in fact, I, I, I think we probably disagree in other areas of systematic theology way more than we agree. But uh, Sam Storm's is such a fascinating test case, though, as well, because, number one, this guy belongs to a stream of Christianity, the Reformed people, who by and large tend to be completely against signs and wonders and tongues and, and all this kind of thing. So in a sense, he's a hostile witness. You know, he's somebody who's coming against his own people, and he was himself against continuationism, as he describes in the interview. So I think that's why he is such a compelling case here. Uh, and also he quenched the spirit for decades, and then it came again later on. So, yeah, I'm not giving legitimacy to all of his beliefs or to all that he does. This interview was just that. It was an interview, a conversation between two people. And then Carlos goes on to say that uh, Dr. Storms was on a panel that mocked and laughed at uh, Michael Servetus's demise. Well, uh, I'm certainly not going to defend that kind of behavior. I think anytime there's a Christian martyr, we should conduct ourselves with the utmost respect. And, and so your your point is certainly taken there, although it doesn't really have anything to do with 
charismatic gifts. And to be honest, Carlos, I didn't see a biblical case at all. All I saw was you saying that all of this relates back to the 20th century Azusa Street revival. And my point is, historically, there are other incidences in the very article that you yourself uh, referenced. So uh, this is really a historical question, I guess, because we're both agreeing that speaking in tongues is available today. You are not a cessationist, which by default means if you don't believe they ceased, you believe they're still continuing. So I guess the question is, since there's no biblical case against it, uh, is it available today? Uh, should it be, should this be something that we're all seeking after? Uh, and I think if we read 1 Corinthians 14, we do get that impression that we are told to seek after these spiritual gifts, and especially prophecy when it comes to in the church. Continuing on, David S.J. writes, I have witnessed miraculous healings following prayer. Well, David, that, my British friend, may just be the shortest comment uh, we've ever received here on Rest Studio. I don't know, but... That's great. I'm glad to hear that you have witnessed miraculous healings following prayer. It's uh, certainly an exciting event when it happens. And uh, then going on, uh, so thanks for sharing that. Then going on, Kenneth LaProd writes, Thank you, Sean and Sam, for a thoughtful presentation. I heartily recommend, by the way, two of Sam Storm's insightful books, To Love Mercy and One Thing. I respond here, as a believer who was totally on board with Sam's current perspective for more than four decades before thoroughly reconsidering my previous assumptions. I never was put off in years past by what I considered to be excessive displays, of which I was always well aware since 1972 when I began speaking in tongues. My later changed perspective did come from some biblical and historical studies, as well as some careful evaluation of fruit among us who are not prone to over-the-top theatrical displays. It is unfortunate that modern Christians feel compelled to divide into absolute either-or, cessationist versus continuationist camps. For example, a genuine biblical student or scholar could very well be a limited cessationist at some level who practices faithful prayers for healing with no doubts as to God's ability to answer prayers, and perform powerful miracles. So as not to make my points too tedious in one place, I will post more details later in another comment or two. And uh, indeed, uh, Ken does have a further comment there where he lists out a number of books, uh, specifically Spiritual Gifts by Thomas Schreiner, whom Storms also mentioned in the interview, and then another book called Tongues Shall Cease? Question mark by Tony Watts, as well as Fields White Unto Harvest by James Goff Jr. Yeah, just a quick comment on that. I don't think it's unfortunate that there are only two categories in this case, Ken, because in the one case, it is saying that the gifts of the Spirit uh, listed out in the New Testament have ceased, and then the other perspective is that they have continued. Uh, now, unless you're going to make the case that only certain ones have continued and others have ceased, um, Maybe that's what you're saying. A limited cessationist view would be, uh, unless that's what you're saying. I don't. I don't really see there being a downside to the the taxonomy here. Either you like chocolate ice cream or you don't like chocolate ice cream. I mean, there's no defect in that. Uh, although maybe you want to add a, a third case. Uh, sometimes I like chocolate ice cream. Sometimes I don't. But I, I don't know. Whatever you these categories are not obviously written in stone. If there is a better third option going forward, uh, I encourage you all to think about that and what that might be. But uh, I think really the question before us today is the title of this 
podcast from last week. Are gifts of the Spirit available today? Carlos says yes. I'm not sure what Ken says. Uh, it seems like David says yes. I'm saying yes. I've, I've seen it. Uh, I've seen some shenanigans, and I've seen some of the real thing. And to be frank, a lot of what I've seen, I, I didn't know whether it was legitimate or not because there was no way to validate it in the moment. And you know what? That's okay. I'm not worried about that. So thanks for everyone for writing in. Maybe we'll do another episode on this topic in the future, but uh, that's it for now on this subject. If you have another perspective or want to push back on one of these uh, one of these views that we've already just seen here, please come on to restitudio.org and find episode 310, Our Gifts of the Spirit, available today with Sam Storms, and leave your comment below. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Stay tuned next week for Dispensationalism Part 2 with John Truitt. I'll see you then, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.